the Talking CX podcast. This is our part three of our three-part series with Jeff Sheehan. We talked in our in part one about uh, CX prioritization and continued that conversation in part two with CX prioritization and ROI. And today, our part three discussion with Jeff is going to be about how ROI and measurements work together to help people prioritize. And so I am so happy, Jeff, to have you back. I'm, uh, you know, just really glad that you were able to take this time to join us. So welcome back, Jeff. Uh, thanks very much, Robin. And I'm delighted to be back. Thank you for, for inviting me. And it's great to, uh, to chat with you and Graham again. Yes, and I didn't want to leave Graham out. Uh, Graham Clark is here as well. Hi, Graham. Hi, good to be here. Since this is part three, and it's been a minute since we discussed your background, Jeff, just give us a uh, one-minute synopsis of your consulting background and a little bit about your new book. That would be great to hear again. Oh, sure. Um, so, yeah, Jeff Sheehan, been in the customer services realm for over 25 years now and uh, in a variety of roles in terms of, um, you know, service delivery, service management, service sales, um, business process outsourcing, managed services, management consulting, um, done a lot of things either for customers as a vendor delivering to them or uh, within a customer responsible for CX uh, uh, parts of a CX program within a customer environment. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's something I'm very, very passionate about. And as you mentioned, I have a book that I came, uh, came out in July and it's called Customer Experience Management Field Manual. And it's designed, it's actually designed to be a decide reference book for folks who want to explore uh, how to set up a new CX program or maybe examine aspects or dimensions of a, of a existing CX program for some, you know, some ideas and some frameworks and some examples. Um, it's available on Amazon all around the world. Yeah, and I noticed that on Amazon, your book has a five-star review and quite a few reviews. So it's, I mean, a five-star rating, I mean, accumulation uh, of all those reviews. So congratulations. It lo looks like it's uh, very successful. Yeah, so far so good. Thank you uh, for that. It's it's uh, it's a lot of work to to let folks um, know that the book exists, and I'm I'm thrilled that some folks have found it and and uh, and found it useful. As as you know, I've read those same reviews and ratings, and I was delighted that um, people found the book useful. For some reason, that's my metric. Like, is it useful? <laughs> and uh, right. and, and uh, at least anecdotally from the comments, it seems to be uh, hitting the mark with some folks. Yeah. And, and speaking of book, um, so we've had this promotion to give away 10 free copies of your book to the first 10 people who, um, who just, you know, contact us and ask us for it. Go ahead and send us a note uh, letting us know that you'd like a free copy of Jeff's book. And, um, you know, we'll go from there. So, wow. Um, that's that's and pretty let awesome. You know when that ten, <laughs> that ten person limit has been reached, but and we'll, we'll see uh, what and we'll being realistic about it. If we get more, we'll buy more. So, well, very good, and it comes at a good time. I just uh, changed the price, so there. Oh, you did. 
Does that mean you raised the price? Or you... No, no, no I, I lowered the price. I lowered the price. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Demand and supply says, oh, look, somebody's going to buy more books. I'll raise the price. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the benefits of being a self-publisher. You have complete control over your, your pricing. And I want, uh, you know, as a goal, I want the book to be as widely read as it can be and, and, and not worry, uh, you know, about money at all. So, um, I'll be adjusting the price over time, but it, it just recently, I think it was just yesterday, I lowered the price for the the, the, pay, the print version and the Kindle version. So, but thank you, it's a it's a great offer, and I, I'm 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 blown away that you're doing that. So thank you very much. Well, forget everything I just said. It sounds like it doesn't matter how many people requested the book. <laughs> Graham's <laughs> going to take care of it. <laughs> Mm, that might be a bit extreme, but there we go. <laughs> well, it's a good thing Jeff lowered the price. That's right. All right. Let's get into our questions. Um, the first thing I'd like to talk about, because the point of our of this podcast is to discuss, you know, how measurements and metrics are going to apply to ROI and prioritization and I think the first thing that might that we want to lay out so that people don't get confused, but for the purpose of this podcast, um, I'd like to clarify what we mean um, as far as the difference between measurements and metrics. And uh, Graham, um, maybe if you can just speak to that just for a minute. Yeah, and it's just just for the perspective of words matter, but it's not really a you know stringent religious thing but i mean typically measurement is the action of actually measuring and metric is the thing that that comes out so to use you know a simplistic example in the world that we live in you know having a a voice of customer program or an enterprise feedback uh measurement program you know is the act of measurement and a metric that might come out of that is net promoter score or customer effort score or customer satisfaction score or even a a custom custom metric like a customer experience index or a customer obsession score. There's a number of, of kind of custom bespoke scores out there that companies are beginning to use. All right. Thanks. And Jeff, I think I'm going to start with you. And I have a kind of a series of questions that I want to ask around this. So the first one is going to be, if you could only recommend one measurement and one metric, what would it be and why would you recommend it? Okay. That's a great question. Um, it's, uh, it's something I call or something that is called uh, a customer performance indicator. It's a bespoke custom metric that an organization can create um, that measures something meaningful, both to the business and to the customers. So for example, if I'm a, a wholesale distributor of, uh, perishable foods to uh, grocery stores, and let's say I'm delivering eggs. Um, I want to make sure that my deliveries are on time. There's a freshness uh, stamp, and of course there's breakage. So what's important to me as the as the as the as the uh, the food uh, the, the wholesale food provider in this case uh, this example of eggs that I deliver the eggs on time, right place, right quantities, and there's very little breakage, if any, right minimal breakage. So that's important to me because that translates into um, I get paid on time, I get paid in full, I don't have to make second trips, I don't have to uh, deal with complaints, 
and I don't have to put my business at risk to other competitors if I'm doing all those things well, right? Delivering on time and with minimal breakage. And to the customer, in this case, in this example, the grocery chain, I get on-time deliveries of, of perishable foods that uh, I get them in the right quantities on the right the right day, you know, to put on my shelves. And I and I and I and dealing with minimal breakage and minimal back office sort of paperwork, right? The 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 uh, you know the inventorying, the uh, the uh, uh, invoicing, and all that stuff that might be associated with uh, with breakage. So it's a very simplistic example, but a customer performance indicator is something. Uh, the reason I, th I say customer uh, performance indicator is because it is that something that is meaningful both to a customer and to the business. And I think those are the best metrics because there's a direct linkage between, uh, you know, customer satisfaction and customer uh, repeat business and so forth and, and these kinds of uh, CPI metrics. And I want to also add that CPI as an idea is not my idea. It's originally, I think, written by a fellow named Gene Cornfield. Who I think he was working at Accenture when he when he when he came up with that, but um, it's something he's written a paper about, and I I I believe in it very wholeheartedly as as compared to some of the other metrics we'll, we'll probably be talking about. So a follow up question to that would be: the CPI sounds like something that's not predefined. It sounds something like something similar to a KPI where the business itself defines what it is and what it means. Right. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So it's very contextual, right? So for example, in an airline, you know, the on-time arrival and the on-time departure, on-time departures are important to the airline more often or more so than, than say the traveler. But on-time arrivals tend to be more uh, important to the traveler than uh, the airline. Although there's, you know, there's there's obviously linkages for for both uh, uh, folks. But but an on-time arrival or an on-time departure probably doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot in that grocery, um, you know, wholesale distributor example I mentioned a moment ago. So um, and there's a whole bunch, right? When I was um, when I was in a field service role years ago. Um, we adopted the metric of first visit resolution because we were trying to be operationally efficient and go out to a, a, a customer site with the right skills and the right parts and, um, and effect a repair in one visit because we knew what it cost to carry visits and, and, and uh, do repeat trips and all these things. And um, we, knew what it, we knew what it cost us to send someone with the wrong skills or the wrong parts and so on. And, and we also understood the customer, uh, because we were working in a data center environment, we knew that any disruption was costing the customer something. And, and uh, so when they took equipment down for us to repair, or we took equipment offline to do the repair, um, there was a impact to their operation that was, uh, they could definitely calculate the ROI of that, of, of that time down. So it was a mutually beneficial metric and a great example of, of, a, of a CPI. Um, Can you talk a little more about how that helped them with their ROI? How did it feed into how they calculated the ROI and how did it help them improve it? Yeah, there are a lot of like work streams with that. And so the ROI was, 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 was there was one sort of dimension of the ROI was spare parts logistics was the right part in the right place with the right field engineer to affect the repair on the first trip. And if it was, 
then that was a great ROI. And if it wasn't, then you know maybe you know parts had to be flown from other another part of the world, or 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 another tech had to show up because they had the part, and the right guy didn't have the part, the wrong guy had the part. Um, so so you could begin to see how you know ex- it could be expensive to not have the right part at the at the right place, and that was one dimension of it. The other dimension was, um, or one other dimension was skills. Was the right technician getting that service ticket? Um, not just because he had the part, but because he or she had the skills to affect that repair, whether it was a piece of networking equipment or storage equipment or computing equipment. Um, and in, in some cases, they needed access to the customer environment, whether it's a, a, a commercial uh, account sort of data center, or in many cases, uh, I had a lot of government customers. So you go into the Pentagon, you go into the CIA, you go into some of these, some of these, some of these customers sites were very, very restrictive about who could enter. So, so the right person was more than just technical skill and um, assignment to the, to the, to the account, but also, you know, access to the, to the environment. Um, and then of course, you know, our field engineers in this example, they had trans- they had their own vans or they had company issued vehicles and, um, you know, overhead for the dispatch system and all this kind of stuff. So, so getting it right the first time, was uh, something that had lots of ways to compute the overall ROI, and a lot, a lot of um, work went into figuring out, you know, what a first visit resolution not only would save us, but what it cost us when we didn't get it right. And so, from an internal perspective, that first visit resolution um, uh, metric had, had huge implications across the the services uh, arm of that of that business, and that was a three billion dollar business. That um, improved its its bottom line by tens of millions of dollars just by getting focused on the operational efficiencies around that one metric. Um, so the so the ROI was 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 it was it was calculated routinely regularly and um, oh by the way we were using our own data warehouse we had a data warehouse business unit in the company and we were using that technology to to capture all the um, operational data into a sort of a fuller picture. Graham, what do you think about the CPI as as the most important measurement? Would that be your recommendation as well? Yeah, I mean, I think in I think kind of sorta. So uh, whether it's CPI or or um, but the idea of a a custom metric, you know that 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 brings together both the customer experience and the, and the business operational. So you know the outside in and the inside out perspectives, I think is is important, and we've seen. We've seen people, you know, CPI or CXI, customer experience index, or customer obsession, but but having a flag. I I, I do. I would kind of throw out there a challenge with that, and and uh, an almost a, a vote for the for the you know good old fashioned much maligned net promoter score. Um, so I always love Fred Reichelt, who's the you know granddaddy of CX and, and the inventor of that that metric. What nineteen ninety seven? So. I don't know what is that thirty years anyway. Um, you know, he he said recently in a Wall Street Journal Journal article that if he had any idea what kind of abuses the NPS would be used for, he never would have invented it. Um, but I do think that Net Promoter Score has an incredibly valuable role in the CX movement, and and I'm going to get to part of the reason why. And I think one of the deficiencies of CPI is. You know, net promoter score is something that's well regarded, well known. 
It's an easy thing for senior executives to rally around because they understand it. And I think it has an incredibly important emotional element in that it's benchmarkable. So the problem with CPIs and CXIs and customer obsession scores is that organizations can't look around and say, you know, we're doing better or worse than other companies and whether whether that's in practicality, something that's good or bad, emotionally, and the last time I checked, you know, most board members and C-suite members were human, um, but emotionally, you know, people really kind of need some kind of ability to look around and compare themselves as part of the rallying cry to continue investing and focusing on CX. And I listen to myself saying that, and it sounds really weird because you would think, needing a rallying cry to focus on your customers is kind of a crazy statement because you have to. But, um, you know, to me, the problem with CPI and CXI and customer obsession scores, while they're incredibly powerful and incredibly useful, is this idea of how do you, you know, how do you compare yourself to others in order to, you know, have people feel like they're doing better or worse. And, uh, and, and by the way, just, just probably going to come back and say this because what we've seen is that you know a, a benchmarkable score like an NPS or a CSAT score is often one of the components that make up the underlying metrics architecture and framework that sits under a CPI or a CXI or, or a customer obsession score. But you know NPS is an incredibly powerful thing, and I would argue is you know if there's one thing that's brought us to where we are over the last 20, 20 odd years in the CX movement, that might well be it. Well, let's. Get this out of the way. <laughs> Jeff, what do you think about NPS? <laughs> well, I, I think, um, you know, I agree with Graham's comment. I think NPS is done, and, and Fred uh, Reifenfeld, who, who, you know, created this, um, I, think it's, I think it's been a great rally point for a customer experience as a, as a discipline, as a, um, as a sort of collection of uh, focused effort to, to um, operate a business with uh, customer outcomes in mind. And I think NPS is a great sort of um, starting point. And, and generally speaking, you know, the, the voice of the customer platforms, the technologies are sort of built around measuring NPS anyway, you know, the, the whole um, you know, surveys and scores thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just, it started that way. But um, it's it's morphed into something that, uh, to Graham's comment, you know, uh, Fred Reichenfeld would say himself or has said himself that it's, it sort of becomes something he didn't intend it to become. Um, and I think, uh, you know, having said that, I think NPS today is it is easy, and I think that's a crutch. It is easy to sort of buy, a, you know, a piece of technology that delivers this NPS metric to you, but I don't think it delivers as much meaningfulness as um, something more specific and operationally connected like a CPI, uh, as a CPI would be. So it's, um, you know, there, there are folks in, in finance who would argue about the sort of vagary of connecting NPS to customer loyalty or NPS to, you know, ROI. And, you know, I think that's as much a reality as this sort of rallying, you know, sort of emotional connection to uh, unify a board or, 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 or a, a C-suite. Um, I guess the thing that, that um, I don't like about NPS is that it, it, it always begs the question, so what? 
right? So uh, in, in, in some of my experiences in, in organizations that created dashboards and NPS was sort of the, 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 the prominent, the more prominent of the, uh, of the, of the metrics, um, it never told us why. It never told us so what. It never answered that so what. You know, you, you could see that, for example, mortgage applications were up, but mortgage uh, completions were down. And the NPS score was was went up three points at, for let's say a month. Um, it, it, it always asked, it always begged more questions than it answered, and um, and maybe it's intended to do that. But but I found it to be misused. I found it to be rather not this sort of aggregate at a high level um, indicator of you know we're going in the right direction or or not. Um, but in a sort of middle management operational level in an organization where it really wasn't offering the kind of clarity and specificity that would indicate to a middle manager um, what to do, like what action to take, what lever to pull and what, what to stop doing and those kind of things. Um, so yeah, it's easy to generate. I think the tools make it very easy to generate because they built around, they built tools around this NPS idea. But I think it's, um, uh, I, I think it's hard to, to to make it as concrete and useful as as folks are, I think, expecting it or wanting it to be. Um, would it be fair to say then that if you had to nominate a metric for being the most overrated, would you nominate <laughs> NPS <laughs> to be I that? personally would. Yeah, I personally would. Um you know, uh, I, 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 I know, you know, I'm generalizing broadly when I say this, because I know there are organizations out there that have really fine tuned in a, in, a, in a very sophisticated way how they measure NPS and what they use it for and sort of action that, you know, comes flows out of that, that whatever process. Um, so there, there are folks who, um, you know, would absolutely stick up for it. But I think more broadly, Organizations that are are not as mature, um, as say a Disney or a Netflix or an Amazon or whoever's really really mastered this NPS, I think um, I think NPS is a bit overrated. Graham, what do you think is the most overrated metric? Um, well, firstly, I find myself in a weird position of defending NPS, which is a little odd because I, you know, <laughs> I, have my own, I have my own concerns, but I also think it's, it's, again, it's like, it's widely recognized. It's like using a, it's like using a stock market index as for the health of the economy, right? I mean, there's more to it than that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you know, I don't, I, I think I would, I agree that NPS is misused and, and maybe overrated, but I also believe that the things you were talking about, Jeff, are also benefits, and that is that, you know, for the for the for the innovators out there, the thought leaders, the early adopters, the, you know, the the fully immersed companies, you know, having a a custom metric, you know, like a like a CPI is a great thing. I think for, you know, what I would consider to be the great unwashed, which is ninety percent of folks, um, life just has to be a little more simple than that. And so, um, I think I think. What I've seen recently as a as a growth in this is kind of the reemergence of customer effort score, um, which which to me is more concerning, right? Because NPS is by its very nature nebulous. So I think most people recognize it's nebulous. Some of these other scores people think give them a great amount of precision. I think 
customer effort score specifically comes out of the, the digital world, I think, more than anything else. And, you know, this is a really important thing in UX design, you know, user experience being the individual interaction rather than CX being kind of the, the conglomeration of interactions across a journey. But I think customer effort score can be can be a very misleading thing, specifically because different human beings, different persona have very different experience expectations and and very different perceptions about what's easy or what's difficult, um, you know, which can range from a hundred different reasons from disabilities mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to the device you prefer to use to, to whatever. So I think, I think we still see customer effort score being used, especially in organizations where people in the digital sphere will say, you know, NPS score is junk, right? It doesn't give you all the things you need. We need to focus on effort score. Um, and I just think there's there's so much more to it. And I think what we're going to see leaning forwards in the world of, of metrics, which maybe is part of this discussion today, is a real focus now on on empathy and emotional um, scoring and, and how do we understand kind of the deeper behavioral psychology and, and predict um, kind of the behavioral uh, and emotional state of customers on their journey, you know, and, and, and build organizations of empathy around that. So I think, you know, thinking that everything is a continuous evolution and 50% or 60% of organizations haven't even got MPS or CSAT in place yet. So mm-hmm. let's get real. But I yeah. think we're going to see a, a real focus in the next five years on, on how do we create metrics which will equally be criticized, by the way, three years from now, um, yeah. <laughs> for for empathy and understanding and emotional state um, in customers, which I was fortunate enough to get involved in way back in 2004 and five when that was just starting in the contact center arena. Um, but I, I think, you know, a customer effort score is really bubbling up pretty strongly. NPS score has its challenges, but but the next, I think the next era in this is really going to be around this idea of empathy, empathy and emotional modeling and predictive behavioral analytics. Yeah. So I, I, I want to um, touch on two, two things that we've, we've, we've talked about briefly. And one is, you know, with metrics, I, I'm a firm believer and, and, and I challenge any client I work with, to, you know, with, with the question of why, why do you want to measure that? Like if, if you get, like if you were going to do this at your house and you had to do all the work to measure this, why, like, what are you going to do with it? And, um, I find that to be a big disconnect, right? So, you, you know, to your point about so many uh, businesses not even adopting a, a CX metric yet and uh, and all the, you know, people process technology this, that goes with it, you know, using it. I, 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 um, I find that, like, if there's a very clear, convincing, compelling reason as to why, you know, that is to be measured because we're going to do something with it. And that's just how I think my... Sort of practicality about okay, you're going to spend this time and effort and staff and all the rest to to actually measure it. What are you going to do with it once you have it? Whatever it is, whether it's NPS or customer effort. Um, so I think that's an important aspect of the conversation to um, sort of explore, and that's going to be different, obviously, with each type of organization. But we talked about benchmarks, or benchmarks was mentioned, and I, I think you know I, I've seen this myself when I was at Apple, for example. Everybody looked at NPS every single day and it wasn't for the scores as much as it was for the verbatims um, because it was transactional NPS. So you could see very clearly like how you were doing and how customers were responding to the way you, you did your job. 
and it was very rewarding. And it was also very, um, it had a very powerful impact on, on the employees. People were very, uh, you know, fired up about getting some, some great feedback and people would be very, would take it very seriously if, if the feedback wasn't so great. And you'd remember the transaction and sort of grow and, and, and get better um, at, at your job from, from that feedback. But it was very, very useful to, you know, the, the customer facing employees, um, but it was never the broader, you know, brand NPS or strategic NPS. It was, it was very, very tactical, but very, very impactful. Um, so I, that's probably my personal best example of seeing NPS in use. Um, but, but Apple didn't care about benchmarking itself against anybody else. It set its own internal benchmarks about how good it wanted to be and what was good enough and what was, you know, last year's scores and where we want to grow from there. And that's what, that's what I think about benchmarks is, you know, I, I've seen benchmarks in another example where we all we cared about was sucking less than the next competitor. <laughs> if we sucked less than the other bank, then we thought that was pretty good. And I thought that was an interesting use of NPS um, as, as a benchmark. It wasn't about improvement. And to me, a CX program is really a continuous improvement program. It was about getting away with mistakes that weren't as bad as the next competitor, and I, I just thought that wasn't that was not the spirit of continuous improvement that I was um, uh, looking for. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I'm I'm hearing that the question about the most overrated metric is a little more complex because you can there's multiple ways that you can actually implement. NPS. Yes, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we see that, you know, there's the relationship NPS and the transaction NPS. <clears throat> but, um, but, but even the transaction level, we didn't see scores per se. We, we really looked at the verbatims that were linked, like your name would be in there. You know, Robin did a great job today. She really helped me or, you know, um, Graham didn't seem to understand how to use this device. And so we had to get somebody else to help us you know, whatever the, whatever the feedback was, it was, it was, it was very beneficial to the, the, at the employee level. Let's tie this back into um, CX prioritization. How would you tie, for example, the, the CPI metric, how would you tie that back into prioritization? Would you look at the, just how it's impacting the ROI to find out how you should change your CX priorities, or would you come at it from a different way? Ah, that's a great question. I don't think it's that sort of black or white. I think I think there's, uh, and again, in, in, in a sort of the, the scenario I'm envisioning is a relatively mature CX program that would uh, maybe link um, priorities to brand promises. You know, are we? You know, and we're probably measuring things that are related to brand promises. So, um, uh, if it's first visit resolution, because we want you know customers to experience minimal disruption, we want to we want to show up on time. We want to uh, affect the, the repair because we have the right people and the right stuff to do that. I, I think I think the ROI is one dimension of that. I think uh, of, of prioritization. I think you know linking it to your brand promises are you doing the things that you say to the marketplace that you're you're good at doing um it, you know are you are you are you fast if you're selling fast are you 
do you follow through and follow up because trust is a big part of your um, your brand promise and those kind of things. I think that's I think that's essential to prioritization um, because as we talked about in, in uh, out of the first or the second conversation we had, you, Graham made an excellent point, and Graham, I, I I'm honoring you by stealing your point and using it in other conversations, which is you know you've got to decide oftentimes what not to do. There's so many things to do. Uh, as we said in the army, you got a five pound bag. How much stuff fits into that five pound bag? Well, you always have more than you have capacity to work with. So um, to me, the prioritization uh, has to be uh, you know aligned with the business goals, the brand promises, and then of course. Um, you know, the metrics, which should be measuring the things that let you know if you're delivering on the business goals and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the customer, the customer's experience with the brand. Does that, uh, that make sense? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd also add one other thing, and that is, you know, we talk about, and people often think about these metrics as points in time. I, I think it's, it's often the, the most important influence on prioritization uh, and prioritization sister, effectively ROI, um, but the uh, is around the trends. And so, you know, a a good measurement program will provide you know metric snapshots, not just all up in terms of the business, but but at a you know regional market segment level, which hopefully allows an organization, you know, through a good listening program, giving that to start to get in front of changes in their customers' expectations. And I mean, here we are in, you know, September, 2021, and you, you just think about the number of businesses who, you know, maybe 18 months ago in January or February, 2020, you know, told that they needed to provide, you know, remote digital access to all their solutions and home delivery, um, you know, of their products and services, including restaurants providing home delivery and, you know, Lord forbid, home delivery of alcohol, which has now become a thing where I live in Florida. Um, you know, they would have told you you're crazy. And yet 90 days later, they're sitting there going, oh my God, we need to. Now that didn't take, you know, a VOC program to understand because it was a little broader, but um, the reality is that the trends that you see, you know, give you that opportunity to start to forecast and predict you know what, what, where that's going, and and hopefully to change the organization because the organization can't change in two days. So, you know, prioritization is often around being able to, you know, as Wayne Gretzky, the ice hockey player, said, skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And so, I think, you know, me- metrics and metric trends, and especially metric trends when clicked down to more of a granular level, you know, really give organizations the ability to to effectively and 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 efficiently manage themselves and pick the right things to work on that are most important to the customers rather than maybe the things that are most important to the executives. Yeah. And, and I think um, I've seen a couple of different, uh, I guess, uh, governance methods for that. Uh, the, the, um, the metrics, you know, some are very centralized and then the business gets, uh, you know, a report from a central, you know, authority with the, with the information or it's it's distributed so the business has their own dashboards and can see the trends and the impact, whether it's the digital team seeing in close to real time, if not real time, you know, with the uh, A-B testing and all the other, you know, things that they can see and how they can tweak this copy and change this button and what that does for, for customer interaction, um, or it's the stores or the branches um, and, and, and so on. I, I think I think that the way that 
the metrics are governed also has a big impact because there can be there can be very big delays in response to that trend if you're, if you're centralizing the information and getting it a month or two after the fact you know you're really really behind um so I, and i've seen that where it, the, the dashboard was was not real time at all it was two months old by the time you saw an nps report and by the time you're asking the questions like okay what does that mean so what um you know another couple of months ago by before you get an answer and the and the truth has changed right this this we've seen, you know, the, the, the as you mentioned, Graham, you know, the, the the environment shifted dramatically, very quickly for for everyone. Um, so, and it was way more than metrics. It was operating models. It was, you know, for example, when banks closed, you have a whole vulnerable uh, uh, set of customers who are not digital first, right? They they rely on going into a branch and talking to people to get things done, and now they're told, you know, when they call. They have to go on a mobile app that they can't get access to, or a, or, a, or, a, or a website that they can't get access to. So how do you how do you preserve the relationships with those customers um, that are challenged by not being digital in a, in a in a in an operating model that's gone entirely digital all of a sudden? So, so I'm going to make this presumption based on our conversation and the responses that you've been giving Jeff and I'm going to assume that it's would be would it be fair to say that the most effective measurement that directly links um, CX initiatives to tangible business outcomes is the CPI and if that's the case which I'm guessing that the answer will be yes do you have like a real world example of what that looks like in you know some of your based on some of your consulting experience yeah so so you're right um your assumption is correct i i'm a huge fan of uh practical operational uh impactful um metrics and i think a customer performance indicator um you know type of metric that is custom to the business right it measures something meaningful to the business and to its customers, I think that is the best of both worlds um, because it, and it connects quite nicely to, to ROI. Um, the example that comes to mind, as I already talked about the field service one um, before, but there's another example that comes to mind and that's with a software as a service company. And it was in a conversation with the VP of strategic finance, who is sort of uh, closely aligned with the customer experience um, uh, program. Not sort of. He was very cl- he is closely aligned with the um, CX program at that at this software as a service company. And again, their business model is subscriptions and usage. So they had this whole uh, and they had acquired two companies and were sort of adding to the portfolio of offerings. And so of course, trying to upsell and cross sell and um, to, to their customers. So they were very clear from their customer understanding that a digital first self service mode of support was important to them. The customers really wanted that. They were a sort of sophisticated digital native type of customer uh, using whatever the platform was uh, that they were using. And they didn't want to have to call. They wanted to be able to do sort of digital first self-service. So um, the organization took a hard look internally at how they were handling things like knowledge management and posting their frequently asked questions and answers and, um, and, and making 
you know, their, their, their tier one sort of known solutions to known problems database available to customers um, in a sort of commercial way, not a, not a raw, you know, sort of call center way. Uh, but then they were also sort of, as they were integrating these new products by way of their acquisition and they were getting more tickets from uh, at this, uh, about this, these, these new products, they were converting lots of uh, level two tickets, right? The unknown problem that has a solution now that we know about, now it becomes a level one and it goes into the knowledge. So they came up with a very sophisticated operation about um, tagging calls, developing knowledge articles, providing those knowledge knowledge, knowledge articles um, uh, into the frequently asked questions and, and basically totally making their, their uh, digital first self uh, help as dynamic as possible. I wouldn't call it real time, but it was it was much closer to real time than it had been previously. And again, based on customer understanding, uh, they, they they invested in that initiative. And what they saw in terms of call reductions, in terms of uh, uh, you know the cost savings, because every call, and we all know this, right? Every every ticket has a cost associated with it, right? Um, and its average call length and its average. Um, all this, all this stuff that goes into the formula, but that's why the, the the VP of Strategic Finance was was fascinating because he knew all the cost factors, and so he could very easily um, capture and share the cost savings associated with deflecting calls. And it wasn't deflecting. The thing I love about this, from a from an operational perspective, is they weren't deflecting calls with cheap tricks to send a bot or somebody else to just kind of handle it, right? And not have a human interact with it. They were delivering answers to questions to customers the way customers wanted those questions answered. They were doing a, a, a higher level of service in a more digital uh, way. And so the call the calls went down and that cost was, the cost savings was very easy to compute. At, at the same time, they were getting uh, huge increases in, their NPS scores and their customer effort scores and then their customer satisfaction scores because they listened to the customers and they were they were they were sort of created this continuous improvement program around knowledge management to deliver this digital first self-service. So it was hugely positive. Now I, I don't want to under, uh, understate how much work was involved. There's a lot of work, a lot of departments took some time but they were focused not on the metrics, they were focused on delivering what the customer needed and they saw very very quickly organizational benefits in terms of cost savings and um, a better relationship with their, with their customers. Um, at the same time, they were in, incorporating all that knowledge from the acquired products from the, the business mergers that um, would have been another silo in the company if they, if they didn't you know, deliberately focus on integrating it as part of the success, they would have had you know silos, you know two different sets or three different sets of FAQs for different products. They avoided all that by focusing on this effort. So, um, sort of a long answer. I apologize for the long answer, but but it's a really really cool story from a software as a service company, and it was told to me by the VP of Strategic Finance. So I thought that was, I, I just really was thrilled to, to hear all that and what 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 the what they focused on and how they, they achieved what they, what they achieved. And they used the CPI metric to create kind of a framework within which all of this activity happened. 
or or how, yeah, well, what what role did that play that metric play in in this yeah. example? Yeah. So so um, there's CPI in this example, and I'm sort of translating it because they, they didn't use the phrase customer performance. Oh, computer. sure. But it was sort of a basket, right? So they did use NPS and customer effort and customer satisfaction metrics, um, as well as the KPI and OKR stuff in the contact center. So that was all present and, and in use. Um, but what they did by way of um, uh, customer performance indicator was through their customer understanding, their voice to the customer program, they really did understand what was meaningful to the customer. It wasn't a shorter hold time. It wasn't a uh, special PIN number that got them straight to a dedicated agent. It was that they didn't have to call at all. That's what was meaningful mm-hmm. to the customer. And so, you know, when, when they, and when they called, they went straight to the resource that could tell them exactly what they needed to, to understand to get past their problem, right? So you know, it's a it was a business to business you know model. So you know, you've got a business that's very impatient, calling. So look, I don't want to open a ticket and wait two days. I need to know right now. Mm-hmm. And they were able to figure that out. So so it was paying very careful attention to what their customer was interested in, how you know, what was important to them, and building that into the the overall um, you know scenario I described. So I think I think that was really, really crucial because what sometimes we see, and it's kind of common to see people, uh, call centers, uh, for example, buying technology, not to treat the calls, but to deflect the calls, to lower the, the human interaction and, and, and the cost associated with that. So they were doing it. They were doing a lot of things right for the business. At the same time, they were doing a lot of things right for their customers. And that's, um, I, I don't think they had a, a CPI uh, per se, but it was the same sort of uh, concept in terms of, you know, aligned outcomes that benefited both uh, the customer and the, and, the, and the business. Wonderful. That's a great story, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, Graham, what do you think about that? I think it's a great story, too. I mean, I certainly couldn't, wouldn't even try to top it. I, I do think I'll give you another example of a which maybe is a little bit more amusing. Um, a few years ago, I got to do some work with a, a luxury beauty products company that's very much at the tippy top of that particular industry. And they had uh, they had just started doing um, customer satisfaction surveys and um, they did a combination of those. And they also did kind of on-site surveys at, at retail and, and beauty treatment centers and, and other places where they, where they operated and, and even some phone, phone surveys and, one of the most interesting metrics or rather insights, I suppose, that came out of that process um, was a complete bifurcation in terms of their customers. So they, um, their traditional, their traditional uh, old line customers, as they would have defined them from the previous 20 years or so, came back resoundingly and said, because they asked a question, by the way, about what are the things that are changing about us that you really like and what don't you like? And from their old line customers, they got back a pretty, pretty nasty message that said, stop sending us customer satisfaction surveys. Because um, <laughs> we don't think that's a good trend by email. Um, and interestingly, and this was five years ago, from their new customers, their new line customers, they got a resoundingly positive piece of feedback about, we're so happy that you're listening to us and you want our feedback. So, um, you know, unexpected piece of insight and information that came out of that, which caused them to kind of really 
pushback in their own organization. And it was the first time I think that they felt like, um, you know, the, the woman, because they're predominantly focused on women and beauty treatments, their particular customer, that there was this real kind of true deep segmentation going on in terms of the interaction needs. They understood the product needs. They understood the beauty needs. They understood all the other things that were going on, but it was a real sharp shift. And they also had some fairly significant um, regional differences in that too, in in North America versus EMEA versus APAC. Um, so I think, you know, that, that was kind of an interesting example of how something that, that a metric, a med measurement, a metrics program that went out with one intent, you know, resulted in a completely different set of insights and actions within the organization than everybody expected day one. Yeah, I love that. I love that when that happens. The older I get, the more I use the phrase counterintuitive. Um, yeah. Because it, it just, it just, it, it, so many things happen that you wouldn't see coming or you wouldn't think would happen. And I, I, I love those examples. They, um, they're, they're, they're probably the, the best lesson examples uh, out there. Yeah. And most of those counterintuitive things like that one are afterwards. It's like, of course, <laughs> I mean, what kind of fool couldn't see that? What the kind of fool yeah. that couldn't see that is all the people before, including me and, and us. And so yeah. um, many of these, many of these things, I think it's a, a real kind of piece of support for the for the customer centricity movement that we're in and for the idea of of measurement programs and listening programs all up is that is that many of the things that you learn are so resoundingly obvious but it just takes you know something like a metric to hit you forcibly in front of the face and bring your attention to it in order to make you kind of sit up and pay attention to things that as i said at the time and po post you know, post-metric insights, it's like, well, any fool could have seen this coming, except apparently we're all on the fool side. We're not all fools because we couldn't see it coming. And it's, it's, I think it's a very powerful thing about these programs that they really bring attention to the things that matter if they're well-designed and if they're well-executed. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And I think, you know, we've, we've, we've talked uh, about this subject sort of in a vacuum, right? We, we haven't, um, you know, we all know, um, having worked, you know, for so long, and, and I'm sure the audience is, is fully aware of just how challenging bringing some ideas um, that are especially counterintuitive ideas into the organization, or, or you know, having a different opinion about the effectiveness of NPS when, you know, the incentive program is in is is built around NPS. You, um, you know, so so once we even talked about like how some of these metrics are connected to incentive programs and how uh, that becomes the meaning of that metric it's not customers it's it's you know making a metric that's connected to an incentive program whether that's financial or, or not um so th there's there's a lot of complexity and really really hard work so when you get great examples um you know in in real life um to me one of the more impressive dimensions of of those these great examples is just how much bs they overcome inside their organization to, to, to have, to, to learn that insight and to apply it. Yeah. And I think, I think in addition to that, and this, this kind of, I think feeds back into the, you know, the, the prioritization and other things is the best starting with the assumption that most normal human beings, a come to work to do a good job. Um, but B they, they, they end up focused on those metrics, right? Whether you like it or not, that's the case. So if you can create, a metrics program, which results in metrics that by paying attention to the metrics, 
you maybe by accident deliver a better experience to the customer. I mean, it's a horrible way to think about it. I know you're supposed to start with the customer in mind and then worry about the metrics. But but the reality is after the glory of the rollout, you know, six, 12, 18 months later, when this thing has become part of business as usual, you really need to make sure that your metrics and measurements inform, you know, your strategic prioritization of initiatives. They inform the behavior of your people and maybe even your partners, you know, and they ultimately, you know, line up to by focusing on this particular metric here, you deliver the kind of you know return on investment that the organization needs in order to continuously be invested in that end customer. And if you can create that kind of systematic way of being for an organization, whereby the metrics are measuring the progress that really matters, that ultimately matters to both the customer and the internal people, you know, then you have gold. And and organizations you mentioned like Apple, they kind of have that you know, embedded in their culture, an organization like Amazon, you know, same thing. And we talked in podcast one of this series, how, you know, people are sick and tired of hearing the same logos being thrown around mm-hmm. because, yeah. because predominantly the gap between where the normal people are today and an Apple or an Amazon is just so huge. It's pointless. It's um, true. So I think these metrics programs, you know, really need to, to find a way to inform this systematic improvement and, and allow the organization to move forward in its relationship with customers whether or not they become obsessed about the metric. And if they become obsessed about the metric and being obsessed about the metric gets them to the end goal, great. If they don't get obsessed about the metric, it's a waste to your point about what are you going to do with it. Um, and and if they become obsessed about a metric that doesn't take the business where it needs to go, then you've got a real problem and you need to reassess which metrics you're focused on. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and I've seen it too often, you know, where the dashboards um are are meaningful to the executive audience but um then they they go in the bin you know when that brief when that call is over they, so they just don't there's no gearbox to make them actionable and do something meaningful for the customer or the business and i, I find that to be you know really just a waste so the bottom line is measurements and the metrics for those measurements are incredibly complex. So how do we go about figuring out what's right for us as an individual organization? I was gonna I was gonna say that the act the decision on which metrics and the application of those metrics needs to be well thought out and intentional. And in some cases, a customized metric like a CPI is the right solution. In some cases, it's more of a, you know, maybe easy to to grasp, more readily understandable metric like an NPS. And then for many organizations, and Jeff talked about maturity earlier, maybe this is right now and something else is right tomorrow. And I think the main thing organizations have to do is say, what are we trying to do, to Jeff's point? What is the best thing for us to use given where we are today that's going to help us along the journey? And how do we get meaning and action out of that in order to ultimately do better customer experiences that deliver better organizational performance? I love what you just said, Graham, because, you know, just to give a, a, a we talk about this topic as if it's one size fits all and, and too, too often and, you know, sort of figuring out where you are today. Let's say you are an organization that hasn't got a, a, a CX program or a CS metrics um, uh, set of metrics for your CX program yet. Um, benchmark yourself today 
find out how well you perform today and whatever those you know metrics are that you're you, you know you're, you're using challenge every one of them like why what are we going to do with it so we if we do all this work to learn this number this met in this metric then what so what and and then you know sort of get it down to like one or two that are meaningful uh, to the business at whatever state of maturity you're in and uh, and know that CX program is a continuous improvement program but the program itself will evolve um, which is of course what we mean by maturity so so yeah I, I think if you're just going to get started um, don't worry about uh, you know debating all the debates you know really, really you know you know jump in with a with a practical business mentality and this ROI <clears throat> focus that we've been talking about and I think you'll be, I think it's a good starting point. And then you can refine it and fine tune it because you will learn so much along the way. Um, and it really is a lot of work. You know, it really is a lot of work, a lot of effort to, to generate these, um, these metrics and, um, and understand them. Because um, they almost always generate lots of questions that have to go be explored somewhere in the organization. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I really like your summary, uh, Graham. It's exactly um, the advice that I, I, I try to offer <laughs> as often as possible. Well, Jeff, it's it's been a really interesting conversation, and we really appreciate you being here to go through this and have this discussion with us. And uh, we just really enjoyed having you here. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, and I I, I absolutely love that you've invited me, and that we've got to have an extended conversation with these uh, three part series, but. I've uh, I've enjoyed it very much, and and uh, you know it, it's just so many things to chat about. But what I love is it's grounded in like real world customer kind of stuff, and 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 that's um, you know that's what I like. It's it, it's uh, stuff you can use out with with uh, out in the field with customers. Great, and Graham, I'm encouraging people to uh, contact us and ask us for a free copy. Jeff's book. Just how many books are we giving away? As uh, as my mother says, or used to say when she was alive, you know, always ask. Often the answer is no, but you still got to ask. So, um, you know, our intent is to do it. It is. <laughs> it is. By the way, more seriously, a really great book. It's as I think I said in the first podcast. You know, I love the fact it has lots of short chapters. As as Jeff said, it's not really a front to back read as much as a dip in and out. Um, you know, to help you with things that you really are facing today. So, um, our our fundamental mission is kind of the the uh, promotion of the CX revolution all up. And so, if uh, if us buying and giving people copies of Jeff's book promotes that, then then that's a good thing for us to do. Yeah, we we, we got to get this book to the top of the bestseller list, you know? We want to be in the credits list for Jeff's next book. <laughs> absolutely, That's absolutely. Right. Yeah, uh, thanks so much. That's great stuff. Well, thank you so much, Jeff and Graham, and I hope everyone um, got something useful out of this conversation that you can take back and apply to your own organization. Thank you for listening. You can contact us on all through all the regular media links that we have, Twitter, LinkedIn. Leave us a message on our recorder, and we'll talk to you next time. And in the meantime... Do CX right. Do it right now. Thanks, everybody.